Thanks for that. All right, I'm just going to move this a little bit closer. Yeah. All right, good day, everyone. Now, before I get started, last week in the evenings, uh, we had the Carols at the Bay, our Christmas Carols event. Show of hands, who was able to make it along? All right, good, quite a few. Now, I'm, I'm curious, were many people able to make it to multiple Christmas Carol events? Hands up? Not me? We've got a few people. Uh, the reason I ask is, for quite a few of my friends, uh, Christmas is the real highlight of their year. It's the thing they look forward to, and there's so much joy around. They love the lights, the presents, the food. But the thing that tends to be the highlight among highlights is the Christmas carols. In fact, I was talking to Lachlan Shanks, one of our youth leaders here, and he was telling me how disappointed he was that he was only going to be able to make it to one Christmas carol event this year. Now, I was blown away because I come from a bit of a contrast to this. And I reckon I've only really warmed up to Christmas carols in the past couple of years. And that's due to my history working in retail. <laughs> you see, they start playing the Christmas songs around late September. And it tends to be the same one-hour track all day, all week, for several months, over and over and over. You can see why someone might get sick of them at that point. But there's a reason why we continue to sing songs at Christmas time, isn't there? They remind us that there's something that we hunger for that there's something worth praising. So I wanted to spend some time this evening talking about why we shouldn't get sick of the songs that we sing at Christmas time, why we shouldn't get sick of Christmas carols. Now, you may have heard some sermons on the very first Christmas. Well, I like to consider this uh, the sermon on the first Christmas carol. We've been going through this series on discipleship, and today we're looking at what it means to be overflowing with praise. And we're going to be doing this by looking at an example of praise, where Mary, the mother of Jesus, sings a song singing God's praises. And from this, we'll be able to see why we also can be overflowing with praise. So the first point on your outlines, do you notice how Mary starts her song? Verses 46 and 47. My soul glorifies the Lord, And my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. The opening of her song is expressing all of this emotion on who God is to her. The Lord and her Savior. Now, that sort of exclamation doesn't seem too odd at first glance, does it? But can you imagine if someone did something like that here today? Like if I was to say, My spirit rejoices in Lauren Hull, my ear staff worker. (laughs) It's not the sort of thing you'd hear, is it? No offense, Lauren. (laughs) But while we might not declare it in such a way, it's very normal for us to hold certain people up on a pedestal, isn't it? People that we give them special honor. I remember a couple of years ago, John Lennox was giving a talk at the University of Adelaide. 
Uh, if you don't know who John Lennox is, he's a theologian and an author, a bit of a public figure for Christianity. I would often get invited to debate with people like Richard Dawkins on uh, television. So my friend and I, we were doing the welcoming for this event. And this meant that we had the opportunity to say hi and shake uh, John Lennox's hand as he entered the venue. And then when John was out of earshot, my friend just turned to me and said, I'm never washing this hand again. I'm sure we can all think of examples of people that we hold up on a pedestal like this. It might be a sports star or some other celebrity that we hold them up on a pedestal simply for what they are. But when it comes down to it, aren't they just human? Are they worthy of our praise? Potentially. But here's what the Bible has to say about God's worthiness of praise. Revelation 4.11 says, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. The people that we give our praise to, are they worthy of it? Maybe. They may be great people. They may do great things. But they're still people. They stand next to God, who we see is worthy of glory and honor and power. He's the creator of all existence. Now, are we always going to feel like singing God's praises? Not necessarily. But is he always worthy of our praises? Definitely. For he is worthy of praise. And in looking at the greatness of God, Mary also acknowledges who she is next to God. Recognizing who God was to her involved her recognizing who she was to God. She goes on to include this in her song, looking at verse 48. For he has been mindful of his, the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. Mm. She's rejoicing even as she declares herself a servant. And if she's just a servant, why would all generations call her blessed? Well, she describes why she can rejoice as a servant and why all generations will call her blessed in verse 49. For the mighty one has done great things for me. So is Mary worthy of our praise? Should we worship Mary? Let's take a quick moment to consider the word worship. It can be defined as to honor someone in recognition of their merit. I'll repeat that. It can be defined as to honor someone in recognition of their merit. And this is what we do when we are worshiping God. We are honoring him with the recognition of his merit. And singing praises is just one way that we can do that. But we can also praise him in other ways. So, some of you might know me, my mum is a music teacher. And my dad, he's the only person I know who's been asked to sing quieter during church. Don't worry, it wasn't this church. Now, on a scale, if I was to put myself somewhere between my father and my mother, I'm probably closer to my dad than I care to admit. 
does this mean I can't give God good praise? I don't think so. Praise is not limited to singing, but honoring someone in recognition of their merit. For example, I was having lunch last week with our minister, Colin Taylor, and he was telling me how Manchester, Uni- uh, Manchester City beat Manchester United in the soccer, aka football. And then he just kept going on about how great Manchester City was, telling me various things about them, like how good they were at passing the ball to each other and their ball possession time. Yes, I remember it, 75%. <laughs> he was giving them some well-deserved praise. Now, he wasn't singing this information, but what he was doing was reiterating what it was that was good about them. We can do the same thing with God. Praise is recognizing God for who he is and what it is that's so good about him. Rehashing what is so great about him. So what is the merit that is attributed to Mary here? Again, verse 49. For the mighty one has done great things for me. Mary recognizes that her merit isn't anything that she's done, but she's blessed because she found favor with God. So does this suggest that we should be giving Mary our praise? That's not what it means where it says every generation will call her blessed. Because she is the one that's receiving favor from God. God is the one that's doing great things for her. Does it make sense to praise someone for having great things done for them? Doesn't it make far more sense for us to praise the one who has done the great deed? Now, are we all in the same position as Mary? Probably not. I don't think anyone here is pregnant with the Son of God. But I would suggest that we've all found favor with God. And that has to do with that title that Mary praises God with. And that is Savior. You see, who God is, is directly tied with what he's done. Let's look at the second point of the outline. We can praise God for what he has done. So what is it that he's done? And who has he done it for? Well, Mary starts listing this off. What is it that she's praising God for? Starting in verse 50. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. Everything that Mary sings in this song stems from this idea of God's mercy extending to those who fear him. And what's exactly involved in this mercy? In verse 51, he has scattered the proud. And in verse 52, he has brought down rulers from their thrones. Hmm. Got to be honest, when I think mercy, that's not the first image that jumps to mind. Doesn't really sound like a merciful thing, does it? But how is he doing this? He's bringing down rulers from their thrones by establishing a new throne over a new kingdom. A better throne over a better kingdom. And this has been God's plan since the beginning. You see, all the way back in Genesis, we see that we, humanity, rejected God's rule. We wanted to be our own kings. And when we did that, it severed our relationship with God. And the world 
kind of broke. And this is quite clear to see. I mean, in our mind's eye, we've got this idea of how the world should be, don't we? But that isn't what we see. We just need to watch the news for five minutes to see how messed up it all is. And we have certain expectation for our leaders that they'll be able to fix it. But they fail to fulfill them. We see uh, that they struggle to get along with each other. We hear stories of corruption and deceit from leaders all across the world. I mean, here in Australia, we've had four prime ministers over the past five years. Is there no one who is a suitable leader? And we're not really any better at leading ourselves, are we? We are ourselves very capable of being selfish and hurting those around us. We've all done wrong at some point. We wanted to be our own rulers, and God gave us the freedom to do that. But he also knew how it would turn out. So he started this plan of mercy. He would save us from ourselves. And Mary knew that Jesus' coming was part of this God's plan of mercy. In Luke chapter 1, verse 32 and, verse, and 33, we see she is told, He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever, and his kingdom will never end. We've all let people down at times, just as other people have let us down. And this includes other Christians, and includes our Christian leaders. We're all flawed people. But Jesus? Jesus is the ruler that will never let us down. But there was something that still needed to happen before this throne could be established. Our relationship with God was still severed and it needed to be fixed. And for this to happen, Jesus, the king, needed to come down here, humble himself, live among his people, and even die for them. There's something praiseworthy in that, isn't there? A while ago, I was working with an exhibition that was going around, a call, uh, going around Australia called Their Sacrifice which was honouring the sacrifice made by Anzac soldiers. And while I was working with this exhibition, I got to share the stories of Anzac soldiers that had given their lives for the sake of those they cared about. In 2015, we just celebrated the 100-year anniversary of Gallipoli. 100 years later, and we're still honouring those that gave their lives we're still telling their stories. Notice that the people that we continue to honour throughout the generation are those that have given their lives. And it's no wonder, is it? It's the ultimate act of selflessness. This is why at Anzac Day, the Bible passage that tends to get read is this. It's John fifteen thirteen. Greater love has no man than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. That is the type of king that we see in Jesus is. Not the type of king that lords over his people, but leads them by dying for their sake. He deserves to be praised 
for who he is. And who he is, is directly tied to what he has done. He is the king that sacrificed himself for his people. We're still praising the Anzacs 100 years later. Likewise, praising Jesus for the sacrifice that he made to establish his kingdom will never get old. And what does this kingdom look like? Continuing verses 52 and 53, he has lifted the humble and filled the hungry with good things. Who are the humble? The humble are those that need God's help and know it. They're the ones that know they need to be saved from this broken world. And who are the hungry? Well, this isn't the physically hungry people, as it doesn't say that they're going to be filled with food but they're going to be filled with good things. The hungry are those who hunger for righteousness. They hunger for right and justice. They want to see right and justice done. And in this kingdom that's going to be established, well, they'll be filled with these things. All of these things will be satisfied completely. The world will be as it should be. So who is this kingdom for? It's for anyone that wants to be a part of it. It's for anyone here who wants to be a part of this new good kingdom. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I tend to get more excited when something is happening directly for me. I can get excited for good news for my friends, but I get really excited about good news for me. So, for example, this year, a few of my friends have been getting married. I've been kind of excited for their weddings. You know, I'm excited to share and that, celebrate that. But I'm much more excited for my own wedding. Not even ashamed about saying that. But that's just a natural instinct, isn't it? Who is this mercy for? It's for anyone here. It's for you. It's for me. And Mary realized that she was also included in this. No wonder she was so excited that she felt the need to start singing praises to God. Now, I don't know about you guys, but if someone does something for me, something I could never do for myself, I want to express my gratitude to them. I want to demonstrate I recognize what it is that they've done for me. When those times come, when we don't necessarily feel like praising God for who he is, we can take from Mary's example. We can remember what it is that God has done for us, and we can praise him for that. That is what God has done for us. But that's not the end. The last point on your leaflet, what God will do for us. In Mary's song, when she says these things about tearing down rulers and feeling the hungry with good things, she speaks of them as if they're already done. It's the past tense. But as I look around, I don't see that. I still see brokenness. Let's have a look at the last two verses in Mary's song. Verses 54 and 55. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever. Forever. 
just as he promised our ancestors. All through Israel's history, they've been looking forward to this time when the promised king would arrive. The promised king that would rule forever. She could speak of these things in the past tense, because all through Israel's history, God has made promises to his people, and he's always kept them. And Mary knew that this little, not even a baby yet Jesus, was going to be that king. How can Jesus possibly be king forever if he gave up his life in his sacrifice? Well, he came back. He defeated death. And what does it mean that he defeated death? Well, let's look forward to Revelation 21.4. It says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, or mourning, or crying, or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. The order of death has passed away. He will fill the hungry with good things. No more pain, no more suffering, no more of these bad things. This is the new kingdom that we have to look forward to. Those who are hungry for it. And this isn't just something that's going to last for a short time. But again we're told that this mercy is going to be forever. It will never fade. How easy is it for us to give our praise to things that don't last? Christmas is a time of joy, right? But it just it goes in a flash, doesn't it? Especially around Christmas time. Let's consider what it is that we're giving our praise to. Ecclesiastes Chapter 1, verse 2 tells us, Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. Bit of a dull note. Uh, though that word meaningless probably translates better as vanity, which means it doesn't last. How many of us here have a Christmas present from more than 10 years ago that we still use regularly and is in good condition? Yeah, I didn't think so. I can't even remember what I got for Christmas 10 years ago. But it would be very easy for anyone in our culture to look at us and look at our culture and see us praising objects just like these that don't last. So we tell ourselves stories at Christmas time about how Christmas is about the spirit of giving and family. But the teacher would go on to continue to tell us that these things too are only temporary. They're definitely good gifts from God and deserve recognition of their merit. But ultimately, the only thing that will last is this kingdom. The thing of greatest significance is this kingdom that will last forever. The true meaning of Christmas is the arrival of this king who will reign forever. And that is a story that will never get old. This is the story of Christmas that we will keep telling. So what does it mean for us? Well, Christmas is a great time for us to uh, reflect on what we're worshipping. Is it 
possessions like Christmas presents? Or is it relationships like family? Like what our society tells us Christmas is about. These can be good things, and they can be given praise, but we also need to remember these are just gifts from God. Let's not praise the gifts above the gift giver. And how is it we can tell what it is that we're worshipping? What is it that is at the top of our praise? Well, what are we trying to honour with our lives? What do we spend our time thinking about? What do we use our energy on? What directs our actions? If someone was to uh, look at our lives, what would they say we are doing the best to honour with our lives? I would suggest the one worthy of this honouring is God. So why is it that we can praise God? We can praise God for who he is. He is awesome. He is worthy to be put up on this pedestal. We can praise God for what he has done. The sacrifice that he made for our sake. And we can praise God for what he will do. The setting up of this kingdom with no more death and no more pain that will last forever. There are many good things that are deserving of praise. But ultimately, God is the one who is deserving of all glory, all honor, and all praise. So let's sing the better song. Let's fill our lives with this better song. Let's use our whole lives to sing the praises to the one who is worthy of praise. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, you are worthy of glory and honor and praise. You have done great things for us. Your deeds are mighty. Help us to praise you all of our days. Amen. Thank you.